0: Welcome to Let's Talk Learning Disabilities with Lori Peterson and Abby Weinstein. Lori and Abby spend their days talking about dyslexia, dysgraphia, dyscalculia, and ADHD. They talk to parents of struggling students and adults who have had a lifetime of academic challenges. They want to share those stories along with their own insights with you. So, let's talk learning disabilities.
1: Hey everybody, this
2: is Lori. And this is Abby.
1: Welcome to episode number 59 of Let's Talk Learning Disabilities. Hope you guys are doing well and your new year is off to a great start. Um, Today, we are super excited because we are going to talk about something that, I mean, we get asked about probably every day. Every day. Every day. Mm -hmm. And we have probably, I don't know, a lot of episodes on ADHD and all about executive function and symptoms, but today we're going to talk about treatment. And the most common treatment, which is medication. Mm -hmm. So today, we are so lucky to have a psychiatrist with us today. Her name is Bianca Bush. She is a psychiatrist here in Texas, but is also licensed across a few other states. So Bianca, thanks for being here with us today. Glad to be here. So tell us what state you're licensed in. So I'm licensed in Texas, Illinois, Massachusetts, and New York. Awesome. Is Is there a method to which ones you chose?
3: You know, I trained in Illinois, in Chicago, trained in Massachusetts. New York just is a place where people are used to psychiatry,
1: therapy, and medications. And then, of course, I'm living here in Texas. So, yeah, yeah those awesome. are the reasons. Yeah. Okay, good. So you have a little history in each of those. Uh-huh. So we're going to just jump right in because we have a whole bunch to talk about, and we're going to see if we can squeeze all this into one episode. So I think the first thing, well, first, tell us a little bit about you and how you landed as in psychiatry and kind of what led you to this place.
3: Sure. So I've always loved working with children and families. Um, I had seven years before medical school, and I worked with children and families for, during that time in public health and, and public policy. And so I knew I would do either pediatrics, but then I found psychiatry, and I was like, wow, I get to listen to people's stories, hear about things. I get to take a lot of time to do it, and I fell in love. So that's how I ended up choosing psychiatry. And then to continue working with families, I chose child and adolescent psychiatry.
1: And most recently, you've kind of become a little bit more specialized, right? Yeah, so most recently,
3: I've decided to tailor my practice to college students, which is a really fun age, Um, you know, emerging adults coming out of adolescence. And so it's helpful because I do have the licenses across states. Um, I can see college students when they're at home and also at school. In addition to that, um, training as a child and adolescent psychiatrist, we spend time with parents in ways that adult psychiatrists don't. Um, so I'm very comfortable, you know, making sure I keep uh, my patients, my college students' information confidential while also sort of reassuring parents and
1: involving them in appropriate ways, things ways that I feel are, are developmentally appropriate for emerging adults. That's awesome. That's awesome. Okay, so jumping right in, if we can just kind of start with a, a – An easy explanation, if there is one, on what what exactly does ADHD medication do for somebody who has ADHD?
3: So, you know, technically, the the physiology, um, stimulant medications are the most common medications for ADHD, and they work to increase dopamine and norepinephrine. So that's the scientific blah, blah blah. But basically, what they really do is they increase the attention span, they decrease hyperactivity, and they really help people sort of organize their minds, executive function, right? This is something I'm sure you guys talk about all the time in your pet podcast. But It really just makes it easier for people to organize. So
1: those are the three things. So then how, do, so this is a question we get, how does a stimulant help somebody become less hyperactive impulsive? Because right. it's a stimulant.
3: Yeah. So it's really, you think a stimulant is like going to make you more hyper, right? Based on the name, but really what it's doing is it, working sort of on the frontal lobe, the control centers of the brain. And so it kind of puts a break on the impulsivity, right? So you have, you know, if you have a child that has a hyperactive type of ADHD, they may be running all over the place doing things that are impulsive, like, why, why would you think that was a good idea? And so these medicines really work on that front part of the brain that um, sort of helps you organize. And um, I see it works on inhibition. So it will help you put the brakes on things um, instead of just doing something rashly and not thinking about it.
2: Okay. That makes sense. So it kind of helps you put your brakes on or maybe think before acting or think before mm-hmm. speaking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So those are stimulants. So what What about the non-stimulant ADHD medications? Mm-hmm. Um, what do those do in your brain? And are they as effective as stimulant? Mm -hmm. ADHD medications?
3: Yeah, that's an interesting question. You know, the thing that's interesting about stimulant medications is that 70% of people who take stimulant medications will see an improvement in some area of their cognition or executive function, even if they don't have a diagnosis of ADHD, right? That's very interesting. That's the highest rate of all the medicines I prescribe. It's like one of the most effective. So when you ask about Ask about whether or not it's effective. Yes, very effective. Non-stimulant medications are things like um, alpha agonists, like guanfacine and clonidine, which are technically blood pressure medications, but we've seen that they're very helpful in sort of reducing the hyperactivity. They they mainly work for that. They have other sort of side effects that we can sometimes use to our advantage, like sedation and that kind of thing. You know, if we have kids have trouble getting to sleep at night. Other non-stimulant medications are. Well, Butrin, which is technically in the class of uh, antidepressant medication, um, it also works on norepinephrine um, and it has a lot of effects, but it's actually pretty good. It's one of my go to non stimulant medications for the treatment of ADHD. And then the other um, two that are popular and commonly used are Stratera and then a newer medication, quellbri And both of those um, work on the norepinephrine systems. And they also have some like antidepressant and um, anxiolytic or anti-anxiety effects. So those are also really good medications. Um, you asked sort of about the difference in how they work. That's sort of the, some of the, the neurotransmitters. Um, um, but yeah, so the Stratera and the quellbri I always like to highlight that if you have someone who has like a concurrent depression or anxiety, maybe you try one of those medications and you're treating multiple things at one time.
1: Okay, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, I didn't realize that. And I, know, I didn't know that about the blood pressure medication. And the, yeah. that's super interesting. So there, And there are some other off-label uses, like medications that are prescribed for something else, but that sometimes – like I know there was one that was a, um, the anti-make you – the narcolepsy – That's it. There was. Oh
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
1: mm, on the top of
3: my tongue also starts with an A.
1: Yeah, I Um, can't think of the name of it either, but mm -hmm. that I know is prescribed. It's. I mean, some people.
3: Yeah, some people do use that for ADHD. Um, mm, It's on the tip of my tongue. It's not one that I commonly use, but you're right. Right there are.
1: It's just interesting that they that Uh you know through research and through probably trial and error, people have
3: found some of the things
2: that have worked. Right. (laughs) We've even, you know seen a client that we maybe give them our ADHD objective measure. It's a continuous performance test called the QB test. And sometimes when the client has told us what medications they're currently on, we Mm -hmm. might Google the medication to read to see if it can help improve attention and concentration because we want to see if it affected their performance Mm -hmm. on this particular Mm -hmm. test. Mm -hmm. And through that through our Google MD degrees, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> we have found a lot of different medications out there do show that they may improve attention and concentration. You just have to take it into consideration.
1: Yeah, so I know I could probably spend three episodes talking about this, but I'm going to let you pick like your top three misconceptions yeah. when it comes to meds. Like what are the things that people come to you that uh, kind of like our BD reversals for dyslexia that that's not just, that's like our big myth buster. Yeah. What are some of your big myth busters with ADHD meds?
3: Um, you know, I think this, this one um, is a twofer that the medicine's going to turn my child or me into a zombie Oh, that's a good one. Or is going to make my personality change. And the zombie, I mean, that one I hear so often about any medication I prescribe. And, you know, there are a lot of things that they might see in popular culture, movies, media. And, you know, there are medications that I prescribe that can make people sort of have... um, Blunt, blunted cognition. And that's going to be more of like an antipsychotic. So I try to be reassuring, um, with families that that is not likely to happen. That is not likely to change personality, the essence of someone's personality. Now, if we're treating the ADHD because your child is hyper and really moving around a lot, that is going to be a change. And so sometimes parents don't want that change. Um, they really like their child that way. And so we say, okay, Maybe we do something that helps them during the daytime at school that's going to wear off by the time they get home, right? Um, so anyway, being a zombie, um, personality change, uh, they're addictive, um, which can be true, but is not always true. And so it's very interesting, um, you know, for people who have a history of addiction, you um, Sometimes people will go straight to something like stratera. That's like a go-to, right? Because it's a non-controlled substance. But in the literature, what we have found is that if we forego treating ADHD in persons who have addiction, things like that, we're really doing them a disservice and actually putting them at higher risk for continuing their addiction, right? Because we know addiction is about disinhibition, right? And so Mm -hmm. if we're going to uh, treat that, right, put the brakes on... Their rash or impulsive behavior with the stimulant medication, we may prevent them from using substances. You guys already know this kind of stuff, but so that's
1: something we hear this a lot. Yeah, no, this is a conversation we have. I love that you're saying this. Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah, so you know, I talk to them about that, but I also am considerate, right? So I think about, okay, is there a family history of substance use or misuse? If it's a later teen and they're already misusing substances, I may pause and say, let's try a non-stimulant medication. I I'll, We have to think about diversion as well as someone else in the family uh, potentially using the medication. So it's relevant, but it's not like you're going to take this medication and you're, boom, you're addicted, right? So... um so yeah, that's, you know, when I talk to parents, I say that it's not automatically addicting. Here are the things that we'd be looking out for. Parents should be administering medications in most cases anyhow. And so if we see medication disappearing, we don't know where the pills have gone. Then it's time to have a conversation about that. Um, yeah, that's, That's really where where I go with it. But I do get that question a lot.
1: You know, we talk a lot too about, and I know with both of our experiences and working in the schools, that oftentimes it's those unmedicated ADHD kids that are looking, they're self-medicating, they're looking for something to slow their brain down or to to make them feel, you know. feel
2: quote unquote normal. Right.
1: And so that's when they turn to things like drinking or smoking pot or whatever. Just depends on what what helps them, whatever makes them feel better. And so a lot of times we try to explain that, you know, taking medication, like you said, mm-hmm. could help kids avoid mm-hmm. addiction down mm-hmm. the road. Mm-hmm. Um, at least now, you know what they're taking, you have control over it. You should be the one controlling it. Mm-hmm. Um, but if not, they, they may feel so uncomfortable in them, in their body mm-hmm. that they seek out mm-hmm. something, anything. Right. We had a student come in, it's been several years now and he was, he was in college and, um, he was taking Benadryl, like like taking like six a day Whoa. because it slowed his brain. Now it would put me to it sleep. Me to like you yeah. would never get me out of bed, but it slowed his brain down. Oh. And I'm like, well, okay, well, then how's that good? Um, wow. You know? Oh,
3: not good. Wow. Wow. Oh, that's Isn't so interesting. That interesting. It is
1: interesting. Yeah.
3: Or yeah. caffeine. Caffeine's the other one, oh, I feel like. Right. Yeah. That is something um, that a lot of people use or, or kids will use. And I guess the other thing that I want to say, you know, when um, thinking about, okay, is medication a good choice or not? I think about, okay, what are, what are what's the cost to not, Providing medication, right? Mm-hmm. And so I really think about the trage- trajectory of a youth, right? If you're in elementary school, you can't attend to the lesson, maybe you're not reaching your maximum potential uh, in terms of your academic achievement. Okay, where is that going to leave you? Will you, you know, graduate? Well, people think that you can do less than you actually can. Mm-hmm. So I think about that. And then, um, also think about sort of changing the trajectory of your life. When we're talking about substance use, okay, if we can prevent someone from really going down the
1: path of heavy substance use, that is really life-changing. So I also think about it in that way, too. And I think about, you know, in the same token or in the same kind of thought of the academic, I think about self-esteem. And whenever parents are very hesitant about medication and we're not seeing those kinds of issues now, I always say that should be your first red flag. Yes. You know, academic difficulties or self-esteem issues. Yes. Because once either one of those kick in, you've already gotten too far.
3: Yes. Absolutely. And it's
1: hard to come back from that. It's hard to start to realize once you've decided that you're lazy or you can't do it yes. or you're not smart, it's very hard to turn those, turn those bad, voices off.
3: Right. You're bad because yeah. right. and, I mean my day was marker's pool. They have different disciplinary systems, <laughs> right? right? But if you're always sit, sit down, don't do this, stop that, you know,
1: absolutely,
2: absolutely. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, that I'm, that was awesome. Cause you nailed it. Cause yeah. those are the things, those, those are, are the
2: misconceptions we hear about and the concerns mm-hmm. that we hear about. Mm-hmm. When yeah. We are talking about an ADHD diagnosis.
1: Mm-hmm. So, you know, we do also get a lot of questions about medication vacations. Mm -hmm. And do you have to take it every day? Will they have to take it for the rest of their life? That's a big one. Mm -hmm, But do they need to take it every day? And I know stimulant, non-stimulant may look different. Can you talk to us about that and what that looks like? And and, and is it good to take time off?
3: Yeah. So it depends. Um, Stimulant, non-stimulant. Stimulants, um, fast acting, in and out of the system quickly, right? Four to 12 hours, Really, you're going to be done. And so when I'm starting medicine, I say, hey, listen, we're going to try this. But you know what? It's going to be out of the system right away. If we find that there are side effects, it doesn't work. No problem. So the um, non-stimulants, they... It takes a longer time for them to start working. You're going to be looking at anywhere from four to six weeks for most of them to really start working. I know it's a long time. Whereas the stimulants, you're going to notice tomorrow. You start taking it today, you're going to notice tomorrow, right? Um, So, in terms of holiday, yeah, it's pretty easy to take a holiday from the stimulants if uh, your ADHD symptoms are not impacting your everyday behavior. So, let's say that most of the problem is happening at school trying to get out of the door in the morning to get to school, that kind of stuff. Then I say, okay, weekends, it's fine. Non-school, it's fine to not take the medicine. But let's say that things are really bad throughout the whole week. Like even the weekends are really hard, like uh, just sort of doing normal family stuff. And I say, you know, let's maybe continue to take it for most of the time. Maybe we can take a break during winter break or the summer and that kind of thing, right? Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Is there really a benefit, though, to taking a break? Like, is there is there anything as far as the way the medication works? I mean, because it's just in and out of your system, so... Yeah, not not. there's not really a, necessarily a benefit. Um, it doesn't change its effectiveness.
3: No, it doesn't change its effectiveness. And it's also not like there is this long-term, uh, terrible consequence for taking the medication every day either, right? Right. There had, you know, there is some evidence in the literature about um, growth stunting and things like that, and that I think that was really more prevalent some time ago. And I think now we have a better handle on okay, how do we change diet, or changing medications, or changing administration, so that we're not impacting appetite. And therefore wait. Um, but I think, you know, that was a thinking for a while. It's like, okay, if this is going to be, this child is going to be on this medication for a long time, their growth is going to be stunted. But that is, that's not the case. So,
1: yeah. So, so when parents ask you, is this something that my child's going to have to take forever? What do you, how do you respond?
3: I would say, no, I never prescribe a medicine to someone saying that they're going to have to take it for a lifetime, with the exception of a few things. If people have psychotic disorders, if people have bipolar disorders, then we do have to think about long-term treatment. Um, but for depression, anxiety, ADHD, no, we're always evaluating. I say every six to 12 months, we're evaluating. Does your child still need this medication? Can we use a lower dose? And even before that... Um, Well, yeah, so I would say that. I never say that the medication is for a lifetime. We're always evaluating. And, you know, there's the saying that people will like grow out of their ADHD. You guys know about this. I find that it's probably people develop skills mm-hmm. to um, deal with their ADHD as the years go on. However, we can often see um, a reemergence of issues as academic demands get higher in um, college, graduate school, that kind of thing. But I say that, you know, often as time goes on, people um, have developed the skills and they may not need the medication
2: at all or as much, but we're always evaluating. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think the developing skills is a big one. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I would
2: say that. I oftentimes tell parents that when they ask, will my child have to take ADHD medication forever, is that with maturity and learning coping strategies and compensatory Mm -hmm. techniques, they may not need the medication at a later date. Mm -hmm. And also, I think it depends also on your life circumstances Mm -hmm. and your environment. So there might be times where you're doing great with managing your ADHD without medication. And then maybe you go back to college later in life, or you go to graduate school, Mm -hmm. you need it again, or you have a new job and there's a lot of distractions Mm -hmm. in your workplace and you have a lot of demands put on you and you have to multitask and, you know, you have, Hard deadlines. So depending on the stage, the phase of your life, the environmental demands, I think it can ebb and flow. I think you, you you're gonna have ADHD forever, but you may not need ADHD medication forever. Yes. Is there is there any
1: research that you're aware of that shows that taking medication over time sort of trains your brain to to um produce the the chemicals that you need, the dopamine and the is there any evidence that your brain starts to learn how to do that on its own? That's a good question. I, I don't know the answer to that. Um,
3: what what I do know is that in the same way that we will prescribe antidepressants for someone with depression to, to treat their condition so that they can access the skills, right? So that they can Mm -hmm. start to learn them. So I don't know that it necessarily changes the chemistry of the brain and that there's more dopamine available or anything, but it does, I feel like it does allow someone to be more able to
1: access the skills, to learn the skills. And so I think of it the same way with ADHD. We talk about that with because we always recommend coaching mm-hmm. alongside because you've you know the medication is not going to keep you from procrastinating yeah. right, but it's going to allow you to be able to focus and and develop skills so yes. that that's no longer as big of an issue. So yeah. it kind of goes hand in hand. Oh my gosh, I'm thinking of like 700 more questions, but I'm going to try to stay on on track here. Yeah. So what's the youngest age that you would prescribe or that's typically recommended to prescribe for kids? Because we get that question a lot.
3: You know, there's FDA approval for some medications as young as three, and that would be like really shocking. (laughs) Yeah. And so, you know, that's really reserved for very severe cases. Um, I, with all medications I have prescribed for children and adolescents, I recommend a course of therapy before we think about medications. That's the gold standard. You know, six to eight weeks of quality therapy for whatever the
1: condition is, evidence-based therapy for whatever the like, condition give is. Give me an example of a therapy you're thinking of, like so, a play
3: therapy or? Um, well, mm, for, for ADHD, it would be more sort of executive function, coaching kinds of therapy, you know. Working with you know, an ADHD coach. coach. Yeah. And if it's a young child, like three to five, you're really going to be working with the parents, right? Like, Mm -hmm. how do I help my child organize uh, to get out for school in the morning, you know, so that we do some of that kind of work first before we start the medication. But really, if we're doing that, and it's not improving a whole lot, or maybe just a little bit, then I think it can be a good idea to start medications. And so, you know, prescribing that young, uh, not super popular, not everyone is, Comfortable doing it. Not even all child and adolescent psychiatrists are comfortable doing it. Um, but I, I certainly would be if, again, we've done the therapies, it's really not helping. And you just really start really small. You're very careful. You're looking at reactions. Uh, you know, you might even prescribe something. That's in a liquid form, so you can really get the dose very low in ways that you can't always do with a pill form of medication. That makes sense. So so yeah, you can go pretty young. I think I really, more in practice, practice have seen like five and six, and maybe not as much the three and four. Um, That would be a really rare case, I would say.
1: My son started taking it when he was six, and it was an absolute game changer for everybody. Teacher, okay. parents,
3: yes. <laughs> himself, so
1: everyone involved. Everyone involved, and it was it was an absolute game changer. And I, he's about to graduate from high school, and I don't even yeah. know where he would be today had we not. Yes. it was a tough decision to. Yeah, and yeah. and that's what we hear a lot, especially when they're young, to start them on that kind of medication. But mm-hmm. I mean, the changes are, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, I don't even know like, how to describe them. I've yeah, seen,
2: I've seen it change so many children's lives for the better. Mm-hmm. Like they. I mean, a 180, mm-hmm. but there are a lot of parents that are concerned about medication and starting it early at a young age. I mean, I do hear a lot of parents say, oh, well, I'm, they're too young. I'm not going to even consider mm-hmm. medication now, which is fine. I respect mm-hmm. that. And I always say, please, you know, still mm-hmm. look into working with an ADHD coach or a therapist, mm-hmm. you know, we got to work on behavior modification and, learning strategies and coping and trying some natural alternatives maybe if you're not ready to think about medication, but know that it's an option and that it's a worthy conversation to at least have Mm -hmm. with your physician. We've
1: We've had a couple clients come through that have said, we have tried every medication out there and either we have side effects or we don't notice a difference. And my first thought is always, well, then maybe you don't really have ADHD. But are there? Is that possible? I mean, is there? Are there some people that these medications just? It's just not going to help. You know
3: what I find anecdotally, and I think there is some evidence in the literature for this. Is when there are children who are neurodiverse, they just don't respond to medications in the same way that we would expect. And when I say neurodiverse, I'm thinking often more like on the spectrum, or they have some other kind of neuro something. Thing happening, and so you know they may have um, paradoxical effects to medication. Things that are supposed to calm may cause the child to be hyper. So I always take that into consideration when I see that. I'm like, okay, well, what's going on? It, like you said, is there something? Is there a diagnosis that I don't know about? I'm not thinking about. Um, And then I also really try to take a really careful history and see, okay. What was the dose of the medicine tried? For how long was it tried? Um, And those kinds of things, because sometimes we haven't tried it for long enough. Mm-hmm. or the dose may not be high enough. Um, and I think, you know, again, with children and adolescents, it can be scary for parents to hear like, oh, we're going up in the dose and high and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a lot of hand-holding. It's a lot of hand-holding. Um, it sounds like it, it, it um, can be a lot of trial and error absolutely. as well. Yeah, It is, and you know, with all of our medications um, in psychiatry, it it is that way. Even though there's some genetic testing, still doesn't really give us pinpoint exactly what medication is going to work for who, and so it does take a lot of patience, and it's tricky. You know, a lot of folks will say, "Well, I don't want to be a guinea pig. I don't want to be an experiment for you."
1: Um, And are those are those genetic tests a good place to start? Or I mean, do they give you at least something? I don't find that they do. And okay. I would say in
3: academic communities, no. Uh, I think
1: Yeah. You know, and
3: that is my training. That is, is where things stand now. That could change. They may tell you, they're going to tell you how the enzymes process the medicine. And so that might tell you, okay, we're going to need a higher dose of this medicine or we're going to need a, a lower dose of this medicine, but it does not tell you this is the one that's going to work.
1: Oh, they lead you to believe that's what it does, though.
3: Yeah, and there are times where it's – for non ADHD medicines, you know, there is one medicine, uh, mood stabilizer, lamictal, where it is important to have that genetic testing for people with certain um, racial and ethnic backgrounds because they can have you know, very adverse reactions, Stephen Johnson syndrome. And so it is helpful to know if they have this particular enzyme or enzyme mutation. But really, aside from that, it, it doesn't really. Totally direct our therapy. So that's my opinion. Other people will have different no, opinions, but yeah. Really
1: quick, I know we talked about stimulants and non-stimulants, but mm-hmm. I, I also know the stimulants are divided kind of into two families. Would that be safe yes. to say? Yep, yep, and, yep. And, and how how are how is that divided? Is it based on?
3: So yeah, there are methylphenidates and there are amf- amphetamines. Um, those are the two sort of categories of stimulant medications. So amphetamines are things like Adderall. Vivans. Um, methylphenidates are things like Ritalin, Focalin, Concerta. Um, you know, in, in my training, it's like, okay, well, which one do you start with? And it's kind of just like dealer's choice. And some places, um, you know, they'll say, oh, meth- methylphenidates are preferable. I try to get a family history, see, okay, has someone in the family had ADHD and responded well to something? If I'm really concerned about uh, weight or appetite, There's some there's some evidence or knowledge that methylphenidates may have um, less of a risk of uh, lowering appetite and that kind of thing. So I might start with one of those. Uh, But those are the two categories. Uh, Most often, you can
1: start with either. do you automatically switch to the other category if this one has a side effect or isn't effective? Or do you try to stay in that category for a little bit?
3: Maybe try to stay in that category. And also, again, it's with the dosing, you know, sort of figuring out the are we too high or yeah. are we too low? Um, but then can easily go to one of those categories because, again, the advantage with the stimulant medications is that – they're really out of your system very quickly. So it's pretty easy to switch. The other thing that can impact what is prescribed is insur- insurance, dun, 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 right. what will be covered versus what won't be covered, what's on formulary, what's not. Um, and it depends on the insurance type um, with those things. But that can also direct therapy,
1: unfortunately. I know. That's so frustrating.
2: It is so frustrating. Yeah. And
1: some of those medications, especially the ones like Vivance that don't have a generic, they can be really pricey. Mm-hmm. Yes, they can. Yes, they can. They're very proud of those. They are proud of
3: those. They are <laughs> <Yeah>. very expensive.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I feel like, I mean, I have like a million more questions, but I kind of feel like in you've given us some amazing information. What, if we have a parent that is just very nervous, what advice do you, you typically give? I know we've talked about a few different things, but kind of like, you know, a blanket sort of like, here's my advice if you're nervous about it, but your child is struggling.
3: Yeah. So again, I say... Start with the therapies or coaching. We're going to start there and we're going to see how it goes. And I'll say, why don't you come back to me after six weeks, eight weeks, and let's see how things are going. Let's get a second set of Vanderbilts from school. Let's see if teachers see any difference. Let's see if you see a difference at home. Um, And then if not, then let's talk about the medications. And really, I spend time talking about, well, what are your fears? And a lot of stories will come up. Well, I took this medication. It doesn't even have to be a stimulant doesn't even have to be a mental health medication, an X, Y, or Z reaction happened. And I just don't want that to happen to my child. So it's a lot of like listening and being curious about this or that um, and finding like where is the space to wiggle in. So listening, being patient, asking about well, what is your fear? What do you think will happen? Mm. Um, what happens if that does happen? What are we going to do? So, I'll talk about that. Um, And then again, as we've talked about, sort of talking about, well, what are the costs of not treating? And I really do talk about that self esteem. I talk about the potential for academic achievement. I talk about sort of where does this leave someone? You know, do you want to have them be in college when they're diagnosed or graduate school? You know, if they even make it there, maybe they could have had a different path. Talk about that. And then again, a lot of reassurance about this is not a lifetime commitment. This is not a lifetime commitment. You know, we're going to see how it goes. Hopefully it's helpful. We can stop at any time. Um, we're going to keep reassessing. Um, so it's just really being present with them, being able to answer questions, um, like I said, sort of before providing them with the American Academy of child and um child and adolescent Psychiatrist has a great guide, a couple of great guides on medications, one on stimulants um, and ADHD that I'll often give to parents and have them read through and that kind of thing. So, so that often will, will help move them in that direction. And then sometimes they don't um, sometimes, you know, they're like, it's not for me at all. And um, I'm also open to sort of natural treatments. it's not, totally my strength, but I'll always call on a colleague who may know more in that area than I do and um, see if we can meet them there. The other thing that I will say is that sometimes parents have an easier time starting a non-stimulant like clonidine or guanfacine um, than a stimulant. So we'll start there. And we'll say, okay, let's see how this goes. And that might be enough. And I'm happy. Right. Great. If that's enough, that's great. I was like, okay, we've been using this for, you know, four six weeks and some things are better, but I wonder if we could add just a little bit of a stimulant, you know? And so, so often that can be a way, um, uh, that parents feel more comfortable. It's like, okay, it's not a stimulant. Oh, this is just a blood pressure medication, you know, they, they see the side effects as being less harmful um, than the stimulants. And that can be a way to go.
1: You know, and that's one thing I did want to ask you, because we have, you know, Abby and I obviously are huge fans of medication. We've seen the success in our own life, you know, in our clients' lives, but there are side effects. And I know not for me, but for a lot of people, appetite suppression is one of them. Yeah. Um, are there any other common side effects that you uh, see? So things that we think about in terms of side effects, I'm
3: always, um, as I'm thinking about putting someone on a stimulant medication, really want to do, again, a careful family history and make sure there are, is no incident of sudden cardiac death um, because these medications do carry a warning for that. And that would be someone like that's very young, 17, 18, suddenly dying of a heart attack while they're exercising. Um, and in that case, it's not a total contraindication for prescribing the medicine, but we want to have cardiology evaluation and clearance before we start the medication. And or choose a non-stimulant medication. So that is like a big kind of side effect, scary-ish kind of thing that can happen. Other common side effects would be um, for stimulants, appetite suppression, which you talked about, not a total contraindication. If someone's on the lower end of like the BMI or what's normal weight for their height, what I talk to parents about is really getting in some good meals at the beginning of the day and the end of the day. Maybe they won't eat a whole lot at school. Maybe they're not going to eat lunch. That's okay. We're not going to freak out. We're going to monitor weight. We're going to monitor height. If we see that the growth curves is starting to flatten, we're going to take action. But you know what? You're going to get some fattier stuff in the morning. Throw some butter on those pancakes or waffles, you know. And maybe try to get some healthier fats in the evening, you know, um, avocados, nuts, nut butters, those kinds of things for afternoon snack or for dinner. So I'll counsel about that kind of thing. Um, It's not a contraindication. Other things that might have Happen, um headache, uh, which that doesn't tend to last for a long time. But, you know, talking about being hydrated and that kind of thing. Um, what about sleep? Sleep. That's what I was going
2: to ask. I think it a lot of parents so are afraid that if it's a stimulant, it's going to keep their child awake and they <sighs> sleep. But
3: you know what's so interesting? I went to this great talk when I was in fellowship, and I can't remember the um, physician's name, but she talked about the correlation of sleep difficulty in um, children with ADHD, and there's a strong correlation. And so the stimulants are not a contraindication of someone is having um, poor sleep. In fact, having that stimulant can sometimes help kids and adolescents organize themselves at bedtime to get to bed, right? So it's not a contraindication. Obviously, we're not taking the stimulant at 10 a.m., 12 noon, 1 p.m., right? We can't take it late in the day because it's going to last a lot longer. Um, But there are a lot of things that we can do. So either, you know, we make sure we take it early in the morning. We go to something that's shorter acting that maybe is not 12 hours, maybe it's just 10 or eight hours. I mean, there are tons of stimulants and tons of formulations. Um, But that it can be a side effect. But um, again, I find it's only if people are taking it very late in the day or the formulation is just too long for for them. And we can make adjustments for that. So yeah, those are like some of the biggest ones, I think.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. It's not a lot. No,
2: it's really not. Those are very manageable. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So if, if a parent has a question about medication or is interested in working with you, Bianca, what's the best way for them to find you?
3: Yeah, so the two ways, you can go to um, DrBiancaBush.com, or you can go to TheCollegePsychiatrist.com. Either one um, gets to me, but I just want to be clear that I still treat all ages um, and not just college students, so you can schedule an appointment with me either way if you're just curious about medications, not sure what's needed, and then of course I always love partnering with folks like you who, if there's a question, you know, about diagnosis. I can usually get a good history, but sometimes I'm also unsure, you know, I can partner with you guys to get some more information about what's going on. But anyway, those are the two ways.
1: Awesome. Well, we'll include those in the show notes too. Again, like I, we really could talk about this forever because it is something we're very passionate about. It's something we've seen the benefits from. And it is probably one of the the one thing. And I think, I think medication's just had a bad rap. I think, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I always tell parents it's a lot like when you're pregnant and you go Google something and all you hear are the horror stories. No one ever talks about how great it is, which I mean, it can be really great. Mm -hmm. But medication is, I feel like you Google it, you know, and that's where parents go. And mm-hmm. it's all about the zombie and the side effects and the addiction and the, you don't mm-hmm. read. And I, and I try to explain to parents that, Appetite. yeah, we've never had a parent call us and say, that was the worst thing I ever did. But we have had many parents call us and say, why didn't we do this sooner? <laughs> yes. yes. You know? So Absolutely. it is something we we talk about every day. We're very passionate about. Thank you, thank you, thank you for taking time out of your schedule to meet with us today yes, and to share this information. You. I know that, that listeners are going to find this incredibly valuable and helpful. So we really appreciate it. Well, thank you guys for having me. Absolutely.
2: Thank Abby. Thank you to our listeners today for joining us. Um, As always, if you guys have questions for us or topics for future episodes, you can always email us at letstalklearningdisabilities at gmail.com. You can also visit our podcast website at ltldpodcast.com. You can find all of our episodes listed there in chronological order, or they're grouped by categories if you wanted to... Click on the ADHD box and find all of the episodes that are related to ADHD. You can certainly do that. We hope everybody is having a great start to the new year. And we look forward to um, the next episode. Yep. We're turning
1: the corner up to 60 now. Time is flying. It is. All right, guys. Have a great day. Thanks. Bye.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today. In our show notes, you can find information about today's talk, as well as links to resources and other episodes. If you have questions about today's talk, have ideas for future episodes, or just want to stay connected, you can contact us through Diagnostic Learning Services on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. So, let's keep talking learning disabilities. This podcast is sponsored by eDiagnostic Learning. You can find more information at www.ediagnosticlearning.com.